Hello and welcome to Sticky from the Inside, the employee engagement podcast that looks at how to build stickier, competition-smashing, consistently successful organisations from the inside out. I'm your host, Andy Gorham, and I'm on a mission to help more businesses turn the lights on behind the eyes of their employees, light the fires within them, and create tons more success for everyone. This podcast is for all those who believe that's something worth going after and would like a little help and guidance in achieving that. Each episode, we dive into the topics that can help create what I call stickier businesses, the sort of businesses where people thrive and love to work and where more customers stay with you and recommend you to others because they love what you do and why you do it. So if you want to take the tricky out of being sticky, listen on. Okay, then, what are the secrets to long-lasting engagement of your people and the creation of a thriving culture? These are the things we've covered from lots of different angles over the past 30 or so episodes. But the thing is, they aren't really secrets anymore, or at least they don't need to be. There are loads of resources out there to help you, and people like me and my guests who are all willing to lend you a hand. Resources aren't really the main issue. It comes down to a combination of will, capacity, capability, and commitment. And I say will because when you start this journey, you have to recognize it's a long-term commitment. You have to have the real desire to stick with it when it seems all too daunting a pursuit because there are some fabulous milestones along the way. And whilst the journey is long and perhaps never-ending, there will be loads of enjoyable and memorable steps along the way. After all, you're headed off to a very good place. But it never hurts to keep talking about this stuff. The foundations, enablers, and core elements of employee engagement, whatever you call them, all revolve around some similar and familiar concepts. What makes it all the more interesting is the different way people interpret them and use them all. It's always interesting for me to hear how others have adapted to this engagement challenge and been successful with their own take on it. Today's episode is going to try and do just that. Today, we continue the start of the new year with another trip stateside, off to the Windy City this time with my guest, Paul Glover. Today, Paul's a leadership and engagement coach living in Chicago, where for 30 years prior to that, he was a successful trial lawyer. So, How does a trial lawyer make the move from defending and prosecuting clients and the accused to helping people become better leaders who engage more of their people more of the time? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm keen to find out. So enough waffle from me. Welcome to the show, Paul. Andy, thank you so much. Uh, It's obviously a pleasure to be here and have the opportunity to uh, speak to your audience. So uh, first, uh, a happy new year to you and to them. Yeah, Happy New Year indeed. So I know a little bit about you, but my listeners, they don't know a ton about you, Paul. How about we start off this show with you just giving us a little little insight into who you are, what you've been doing, and what's taking your attention to the moment? Well, Andy, uh, you had already mentioned in your, uh, in your introduction, and by the way, uh, let me tell you that you're spot on uh, with that introduction, not about me, but about the topic that, that we're speaking on. Uh, it absolutely is a journey, uh, never ending if you're a leader, uh, because human beings are complex, uh, 
organisms, and uh, they require a lot of attention. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, I, uh, I spent 30 years as a trial lawyer in the city of Chicago in the federal court system, uh, representing defendants. Uh, I was never a prosecutor. Okay. Uh, based off of that, I decided uh, at some point in my career, basically my wife's urging that, uh, that I stopped being a lawyer. She didn't like me being a lawyer anymore. It took up too much time and energy. <laughs> of course, that was before we had grandchildren. Now she wouldn't care if I was a lawyer. <laughs> but at that time, I decided I was going to pivot. And uh, I looked at my skill set and I looked at the uh, leaders that uh, that I knew uh, through casual acquaintances and through work relationship, because what I practiced was uh, labor and employment law. So since I was representing clients in the corporate world, uh, I was familiar with how leadership was being done, accomplished. And based off of that, I saw the gaps that I believe needed to be addressed by leaders uh, if they wanted to improve. And uh, if they improve, then obviously their teams improve and the organization improves. So I took my skill set and I adapted it to the uh, coaching uh, process and put that out there as uh, as uh, advertisement and promotion. And lo and behold, somebody decided to pay me. Always a bonus. I realized, <laughs> yes, I realized at that time this was going to be a win-win. <laughs> so uh, sure. So so for the last 20 years, uh, I've been a... Uh, I've been a executive coach, uh, and I work primarily with those in the C-suite and uh, with their teams. And I teach a variety or coach a variety of things. Uh, one in particular I think is extraordinarily important is communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that, uh, that a lot of leaders believe they are good communicators, but that's because they believe in telepathy. As I go through the coaching process, and we do the evaluation of skill sets immediately. Uh, we do that through the 360, 360 degree review. Uh, most leaders are shocked when it comes back that their, uh, their teams have no idea what they're saying most of the time. They figure it out, by the way, but they do it through trial and error. Uh, so I've, uh, I've inculcated that into my coaching process, uh, as a part of the opportunity to be a le better leader is the opportunity to communicate better. Well, look, we've got a lot to talk about today. I think we're going to. We're going to have a fun time, but I cannot, I cannot let you go any further in the conversation without digging into this trial lawyer stuff. So come back to that original question that, that I had. How do you go from doing what you're doing now and you've been doing for 20 years from the position of 30 years prior to that being a trial lawyer? I mean, it's not all down to your wife, I, I'm sure. There's a, bit of, there's a bit of you in there. So what's that story? How do you make that transition, my friend? Well, you, you transition because for me, it was not a choice. Uh, I had, uh, I had during my, my career had engaged in some questionable behavior and at some point had to make a career change because, mm. uh, I went to prison. Uh, wow. Five and a half years incarcerated for committing white collar crimes. And, uh, when I got back out again, I had an option. I could go back, attempt to get my law license and become a lawyer again, or I could make that pivot. Yeah. Decided to make the pivot. I thought that it was a better way to uh, to earn a living. Uh, by the way, I, trial lawyers. I tell to people that being a trial lawyer is uh, engaging in uh, in combat. When you step into the courtroom, it is a combat arena. Yeah. Uh, and we don't get to use weapons, but we get to use words. Yeah. 
have a we actually have a referee, uh, the judge, <laughs> and uh, and the judge makes sure that we don't step outside the rules. Right, there are boundaries, uh, but at the same time, uh, it is adversarial to the extreme. Uh, you have a client that you have to represent, and you do that to the best of your ability. And the other side, of course, is in that same situation. They they have a case that they need to present. Uh, and it was that uh, my ability through that communication process that led me uh, to realize that how I was communicating with the, the jury is a way that leaders could be communicating with their employees. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I actually... I always tell the story that uh, that that instead of going to law school, I went to trials. I watched. I want. I thought, well, I'm not going to be a wills and estates guy. I want to go and I be want to be a trial lawyer. What, well, you do that by watching, right? If you I tell people, if you want to be excellent, you need to see excellence. Yeah. So I went and I watched. But my contention was that if I knew the facts and I got the facts in front of the jury, that should be enough. By the way, I think that a lot of people believe that, that if I tell you the facts, you should be persuaded. Yeah, job done. There you go. Yeah, so I, so I lost my first two cases. Uh, and uh, there was an experienced trial attorney who was in the audience. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, uh, you're not bad at what you do, but I'll tell you why you're losing. And so I thought, well, uh, that would be interesting. He said, by the way, it'll cost you a, a steak dinner. By the way, trial lawyers never do anything for free. So, <laughs> so, so he said, and my thought was, well, after paying for three years of law school, a state dinner seems pretty, pretty cheap. Yeah, have two, have two, knock yourself out. So, so we went and we had dinner. And by the way, it wasn't the steak dinner, but it was the bottle of expensive scotch that he drank while we had dinner that about broke the bank. There you go. Uh, and he said, uh, you're really good at telling the facts, but you're not telling the story. He said, if you cannot tell the jury a narrative that engages them in the process of this trial, you will never win a case because people need to hear the facts, but they decide on the narrative, mm -hmm. the emotional impact and connection that you make. And I was like, wow, all right. So storytelling uh, which I had not thought about in the context of the courtroom. And even though I've watched a lot of trial lawyers, it never hit me that you are telling a, hopefully a hero's journey because you have a client that you are representing. You're standing in front of the jury. They don't get to speak unless you put them on, on the stand. And that seldom happens, by the way. Hmm. Uh, what you do is you need to tell a hero's journey, a narrative that engages the audience makes them see your client as the hero, identify with them, and obviously, in the final analysis, decide in their favor. And you never lost a case after that, right? No, I never did. I was very successful as a trial lawyer until I shot myself in the foot and lost <laughs> my career. Uh, by, by the way, I, was, I, I tell people, bearing responsibility for your own acts is a very difficult thing to do. But if you can't do that, you can't move on. And second, I've decided that a part of life is embracing not only the good, but also the bad. Okay. And you do that because if you don't, you will miss out on 50% of the opportunity to take those bad experiences and do something with them valuable. Uh, but we often want to run away from our bad experiences. Why? Well, they're very unpleasant, right? And they require that we actually admit, confess to our 
our involvement in making those things happen. Uh, one of the things I tell the people in my coaching program is you need to recognize your responsibility for the bad thing. And if you can't do that, you can't move on and you cannot, you just, you don't want to lose 50% of your life. And unfortunately, 50% of our lives is made up of things we don't like. Mm. It's the human experience, isn't it? Absolutely. That yin and yang thing. hundred percent, my friend. I mean, I, I, some of my best things have come out of mistakes, you know, the learning that you take from it and the, I don't know, the attitude you change or the approach that you'll, you'll tweak. It sounds cliche to say, but you probably end up learning more out of those situations than roaring successes that just happen. I agree with that. I, th I think that they give you a more fertile ground to explore yourself and how you are acting in certain situations. But people run away from the bad experiences. Mm. Uh, by the way, we talk about authenticity and vulnerability. Those are, those are these buzzwords. Uh, and leaders absolutely have to do that. But so many leaders believe that if they show themselves to be vulnerable, that's taken as a sign of weakness. Yeah. And if they say that they failed, that obviously is not going to go over well with the stockholders or the team, the employees, their co whatever. But the reality is that once you're able to accept those, those failures and you're, you're spot on, we learn more from them because they attract our attention and focus that force us to look at ourselves and others in a more productive way. Well, I think the two things you've already spoken about, uh, let alone your 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 career pathway, are all about either sort of this narrative or vulnerability. It's all about making an emotional connection with an audience, right? Be that an employee or be that a jury. I mean, absolutely. Now, now I get where the transitions come from. Right now, I can see the sort of different perspective that that you bring to the show today of your. 30 years as a trial lawyer and 20 years as an exec coach kind of melding these things together they're, they're, they're they've taken very similar paths weirdly you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think it but the storytelling the emotional connection that's directly what you want leaders to uh, have hone those skills and and use them for force for force for good right so no I, I i get it i get it but why do you think not all leaders do get it paul well, I do think that there is a uh, first there. Unfortunately, command and control still is uh, vibrant mm. and people often believe that that's the way that you get people to do what you want. You you tell them to and then you control them. So they do exactly that and nothing else. The problem with that, of course, is then you're just paying for time. You pay me to come in from eight to four and I will work. Within the context of what you told me to do. And at the end of that eight hours, I will go home, but I will never contribute anything other than what you, you forced me to contribute. Mm. Because I have, I'm not engaged here. Uh, so that command and control has got to go away. And I'm hoping the pandemic killed it. <laughs> because why? Well, it forced a different way of looking at work and a different way of looking at engagement. But most leaders are, are still having trouble with that. When I look at those who oppose work from home, even though 40% of their employees can do that, I don't believe that that's because they think that it's not productive. They don't like the fact they can't watch their employees. Uh, therefore, they're putting spyware on the computers. By the way, if you're going to have a uh, engagement, it has to be based on trust. And let me tell you that the first yeah. 
tell me you're spying on me, we've pretty much lost that aspect of it. A hundred percent. I mean, I've done a fair amount of research and work on engagement. I've never seen spying anywhere in the <laughs> secret manual that goes alongside engagement, Paul. And yet, shockingly, leaders believe that that's how you get productivity out of people. Uh, and so, and you said it earlier again uh, that, that we already know the know the rules. We know the facts. We know what engagement is like and what it can be. We just don't, uh, leaders don't want to do it. The office has is nothing but an extension of the assembly line of the industrial age. That's how we've done it. Uh, we need to break the mold. And maybe the pandemic has done that uh, because suddenly there is this great resignation and, and employees are, are thinking about leaving and demanding well-being, which to me is at least signs that there is now an awareness that cannot be ignored. Uh, what people, what leaders do with that, of course, is going to be entirely up to them. But I think it's pretty clear that no one wants to go back to the way it was. And, and I, my contention has been that no one wants to be managed. The word by itself uh, is distasteful. Managed is about micromanaging. It's about control. It's about oversight. But it also it also kills off any initiative. So you have to make some decisions here. If all you want is that eight to four person who will not give you any extra effort, why would they? You're not paying them for it. So, so it's very transactional. If you want to shift from transactional relationships, which have no engagement, to a relationship engagement where you suddenly get that extra effort, that discretionary effort, it's discretionary for a reason. It's a choice. I choose whether or not I give you discretion because you're paying me for my time. If we can get around paying for time to paying for results, suddenly it's a much different, a much different approach. Second, we have to share that. Uh, leaders, leaders love making the money. They don't like to share the money. But, but as I tell people who are looking at a spreadsheet, behind every number on the spreadsheet is a person. And if that person is engaged, the number you see will increase. If they're not engaged, it will go down. So how about if we look at what creates the number rather than the number? There's so much to unpack there, Paul. I mean, that there's a ton of stuff. Let's go let me go, go back quickly to that first point that you made about the command and control piece of the of the pandemic. Do you truly believe that the pandemic has put an end to command and control? Not yet, but I, I actually, I'm writing an article for Forbes that uh, where I say the pandemic is going to kill off command and control. Mm. And the example I use, dinosaurs. Yeah. We, had, we had an event, you know, the, the asteroid that hit in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, it, uh, it still took a million years after, 10,000 years after that, before the dinosaurs died off, but they, they started to die off. And I believe the pandemic has given us that singular event that may very well crack the code and eliminate command and control because people are not going to tolerate it. Again, Gallup is the bellwether here for uh, surveys. And it continues to show that people leave, 51% of all people who leave, leave because of their manager. That hasn't changed. And of course, what we get is this resistance to employees continuing to work at home, even though everybody recognizes productivity is better 
at home because you don't have the the intermittent interruptions. Uh, interesting, the uh, surveys show that out of an eight-hour day in an office, people are actually productive for two and a half to three hours. The other five hours are just blown away by meetings, useless meetings, uh, you know, water water cooler talk, uh, just screwing around, right? Because people actually believe that if it's a game we're playing where you try to make me more productive and I'm gonna, I'm not going to, we're, we're just going to play this game. And by the way, the employee will always win that game because I don't care how much you try to track them, there's always the bathroom break. So, so you just accept the fact you can't keep this going and expect it to be successful. However, it remains to be seen. I have hope. Well, I mean, I I have hope. I'm, I love the the dinosaur analogy. It's the humanity link there is interesting to me. It's it's the kind of dawn of humanity after the dinosaurs take control, and maybe this is the dawn of humanity back in business. <laughs> that would be that would be a pretty cool thing, and and something be. I'd be really keen to <laughs> I'd be really keen for that to be a good thing coming out of the pandemic. No, no question about it. The point you make around the fear around productivity, and to me, that all comes down to trust. If you cannot trust your team, your employees, your fellow colleagues to kind of deliver on stuff, then as a leader, I guess you fall into that trap of trying to control everything, including spying on someone, limiting toilet breaks. I mean, this sounds like a tremendous place to work, doesn't it? I mean, well, you can't go to the loo. You're not allowed around the water cooler. And everybody's spying on you. I'm, I'm not hanging around there for long, Paul. Right? And, you know, and like I said, and by the way, employees are phenomenally good at figuring out ways around this. I was just looking at an article that have, they're now selling on Amazon a device that you put your mouse on and it will periodically move around. If you're, you're trying to see if that person's still there, it looks like they are. Oh my God! What <laughs> so have, what's what? the world come to? Well, but it, but every time you try to impose that type of structure on someone, I guarantee you that they find a way around it. And by the way, I, it's always interesting. Again, I have, I have too many angles, but but sabotage. I believe there's an extraordinary amount of sabotage that takes place in the workplace because people are mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. And they're there. And if they can't get away from the toxic environment, they will figure out some way to level the playing field. Mm. People are not dumb anymore. We keep thinking that that we're industrial age where you stand at an assembly line and you do the same thing for Ada. That that job is gone. What we keep asking for is initiative, right? Engagement, uh, you know, it, it, but, but we then turn around and try to keep them in that industrial age mindset. People are not accepting that anymore. I, I'm, and by the way, I'm thrilled. Uh, I really do think that we are at that point where as bad as the pandemic has been, that it has fractured this, this work mode and it's going to be forced on employers whether they like it or not. Uh, just like I, people have stopped talking about the minimum wage. Why? Because the marketplace has dictated that the minimum wage is now going to be governed by Walmart and Amazon at $18 an hour. Now, you can either accept that and say, well, we got to play in that ballpark or you get nobody. Yeah, we've got similar things. We've got similar yeah. things going on over here in the UK with. I guess delivery drivers, you know, truck drivers and stuff like that, terrible working conditions, you know, for years and years and years, not great, not great pay. 
And then, oh. you know, we have Brexit. We, we lose a load of drivers and no one wants to go into that industry because it's awful. Um, it and we wonder why we can't deliver anything in the country at the moment. Exactly. It's just madness. Well, and the, you know, the concept of essential workers actually demanding value for being an essential worker. Oh my God, it isn't about time. I mean, these, these people do all of the stuff that we enjoy every day, whether it be delivering our package within two hours. Oh my God. And by the way, we're impatient about that. It's like, what? Where's the drone? <laughs> Isn't it supposed to drop it off now? Or when we go to a restaurant, suddenly the restaurant's closed because you know why? Servers are not happy. And by the way, I think they should get every penny they demand. I have, I, you know, play, one of my things is play the cards you have because the other side's going to play the cards they have. So, so if it, you want it to be a card game, expect the other person to play it. If you want to have a partnership, now you change the dynamics. We both are going to reciprocate, right? And we're both going to understand our purpose. We're going to join together. We're going to work towards that purpose. It seems so simple, and yet we're not capable of that yet. Maybe we will be. Like I said, I've got hope now. Uh, it remains. Another couple of years, we'll know. Well, yeah, I think I think it's going to be an interesting couple of years ahead, especially as, you know, when things do start to normalize. And I don't know what normal means anymore, by the way, because uh, I don't think normal is just trudging back to the office. I think that's that's probably changed. And there will still be people that do that. Of course there will. But I think there's going to be a whole bunch of different stuff. We might even touch on that. But I'm really interested to sort of hear your I mean, so many different perspectives on so many different topics, but within that great resignation piece, how much of that do you think has come down to people having time to think about what it is they're doing and look around and look at companies that were perhaps way ahead of the curve in their focus on people and conditions and stuff like that? And I don't know. They've, we, You know that saying, I wish I could just stop the world for a minute and take a breather? And never happens, except over the last nearly two years. That's exactly what's happened for quite a few people. Do you, like me, do you think that's one of the catalysts for the Great Resignation? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yes, you're right. I believe that this gave people an opportunity to do exactly that, to get off the treadmill, right? Yeah. To step back and look at their lives from a different perspective. Uh, one of the deals with the Great Resignation has been how many people decided to retire. Extraordinary number. Uh, how many people decided to quit their existing job? Why? Because they suddenly realized that it it was it was actually detrimental to their health and to their life. Uh, and yeah, I think that we've we've had a uh, unexpected amount of uh, of reflection. And you know, the interesting thing is, uh, Andy, that that reflection has to be forced on us because it really requires that if you're going to do it right, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, you look at what you're doing and you get, say, oh, my God, I've been doing this for the last X number of years, and I'm starting to think it's been a waste of my life. My level of satisfaction and happiness is so low. Uh, I look around and I've got all of the things that life gives me with money, but I don't have anything else. Uh, when I talk to leaders, I talk about legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? Not only your work legacy, but your life legacy. We don't think about that. Mm. Uh, and the, the pandemic forced us to do reflection. And I think that a lot of people came to the came to the conclusion that they didn't like their life and that they were now going to change it. 
And that's that. And so much of our life is centered around work. Uh, and Americans in particular have a tendency just to focus on that's the item of success. Uh, and the realization that it's not has come as a shock to a lot of people. So what I'm hoping happens is that that level of uh, self-awareness and reflection uh, is is at the basis of this so that people aren't, and I don't believe people are leaving just for money. I, I don't believe that at all. Again, I believe they're leaving toxic situations. They're leaving bad bosses. I mean, and, and it's extraordinary to me that, that at this point in time, we have so many public figures who are bad bosses that are running organizations and, and are big organizations. And you look at them and you go, Oh my God, you're the, you're the model of success. I understand you're making billions off the backs of everybody who's working in your plant. But do you think that now we look at you and go, that's what we want uh, as, as success? And I think a lot of people are going, that's not what we want. That's really interesting, Paul. It, I mean, it is like a bit of a reawakening. There's definitely a reassessment of what's important. But it, to me, it's a bit like the Emperor's New Clothes story, huh. you know. The guys we looked at and thought were amazing. All of a sudden, we really <laughs> we've had time to think about this now. That's that's not cool. That's that's not quite as good as we thought. So that's that's a really interesting interesting concept. Well, it is, and and again, I think that so many people talk about uh, they, they want purpose, and they've suddenly realized that making money is not purpose. And so, and I think for so often we thought that's how you dictated success. Look at the size of your uh, your four hundred one k in your bank account, and you go, I'm a successful person. The problem is that there's no satisfaction that comes from that. Mm. Satisfaction comes from saying there is a purpose. I'm a part of something that's not only bigger than I am, but is good. So we can be big, we can be part of something that's bigger when we go to work for a corporation. But if they're not doing the right thing that aligns with our purpose, it's not working. Uh, and the realization of that, I think, is driving, obviously, the great resignation. And uh, and it's a good thing. that There is nothing wrong with that. And I, I applaud people who decided that it's time to make a change. And uh, and, and when, I, when I talk to employers who say, I can't believe they're leaving, <laughs> I, I say, well, well, have you asked them why? The interesting thing is how many people don't ask. Well, sometimes you don't want to hear the answer, right? Spot on. <laughs> right? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right about this. Would you really like for me to tell you the truth? And you go, not really. Not really. That's going to sting. <laughs> that sounds like it's going to hurt. <laughs> How about if we avoid that? And so you just leave. I'm happy with that. We've covered a lot of ground in these concepts. There's so many examples to flag up of bad stuff. But, you know, we started the show talking about the not so secret secrets to to engagement. So if we look on the positive side of the future, Paul, which I know is something you you kind of really want to champion. If we were looking at what are the not so secret secrets to engagement and the and the hopes that you have for the workplace going forward, what what would you say to my listeners those things are? Well, first, the concept of engagement is not difficult from my perspective. Uh, everybody complicates it, and it's very easy to complicate it. Uh, I think it's very simple. In fact, I've developed uh, the, the what I call the three A's. Oh, okay, I like that. Yep. The, the three A's are are very simple. They're attraction, attention, and appreciation. Uh, the attraction part has nothing to do with how beautiful you are. <laughs> 
This it is an audio do... podcast for a reason, Paul. Let's put <laughs> it that right. way. Uh, that's why. I'm, that's why I'm only a podcast guest. So. <laughs> uh, so, so the attraction to me. I, and by the way, I have a whole list of things I can put under because authenticity exists there. But but I also believe that positive energy exists there. Mm. I believe that that positive energy is that when we see say the, the title CEO, my deal is it's chief energy officer. Yeah, I love that. And you need to be a positive influence, even in the worst of times. Uh, but but so so the attraction part is: Will people are people attracted to you as a leader? And you you can tell when people are because obviously the quality of people that are surround you dictate whether or not your attraction is appropriate. Right? Are you drawing the right people? And that means that you've got to have the right attitude. You have to be a good communicator. All of the things that that are leadership traits that we acknowledge, you have to actually not only say them, but you have to do them. So that's attraction, positive energy drawing you in, uh, treating you well. Well-being is a part of that. But let's move to the second A. Uh, the second A is attention. Uh, people want attention from their leaders. They want to be recognized. Uh, and we don't do that enough. Uh, it's interesting to me that we have a tendency to believe that if we're paying someone, that should be enough. And if we pay them enough, then we should expect them not to be wanting more. And they do. They're human beings. They want attention. They want recognition. They want you to be engaged. And I believe that this goes outside the workplace now. The pandemic has forced people to work from home. And what that's done is engage the family in a way that was not engaged before. And I believe that corporations have got to look holistically at their employee to include their, include their family in their community and look at that and go, how can we strengthen the relationship and how can we make things better, not only for the employee, but for their family? And that goes outside of wages. That goes outside of compensation. Mm. The last A is the appreciation. I am stunned by the lack of appreciation for people who are working during a pandemic at home on a card table and a folding chair with their children and their spouse in the next room. And why aren't you, I just, I don't understand. Send them the tools they need to do their job. Give them the money to go out and buy a desk. You know, I mean, just let's let's try to be appreciative here and show that appreciation. Saying thank you is fantastic. I don't find it. We'll be at a restaurant. If a table next to us hands me the salt, I say thank you. At the end of a horrendous 40 hours plus of work week, you know what, our, what we say? See you Monday. <laughs> Ending, that is an invitation back to hell. Right. The work week has been terrible. I can't. But no wonder we're going to drink during Saturday and Sunday because I've got to prepare myself to going back to hell on Monday. How about on Friday we go, hey, let me give you a, a appreciation hug and tell you how much I value the fact that you stayed in, hung in there with us, with me, and we got the job done. Mm. Thank you. Those are the three A's, and, and I, I'm so I'm I'm shocked by the fact that we believe that we can't do this over a Zoom call. Yeah, 
What I believe happens is because people, managers hate Zoom calls, it's because they, they still want to be command and control with a, a venue that doesn't allow it. So instead, take the three A's, very simple, by the way, and, and you can keep adding under each of the A's, right? I've got a, a whole list. But, but think about it for yourself. Am I acting correctly so people are attracted to me as a leader? Uh, am I showing recognition and attention? Uh, and then am I saying thank you, mm. appreciating what you do? This is so simple. If you can't do that, stop trying to lead. You're not a human being. Let AI take over. They'll get it right. <laughs> it's it's formal A, but it absolutely works. So let's not complicate, complicate this anymore. Let's absolutely use the three A's at every level. And guess what? Engagement will improve. Guarantee it will. Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice, simple model. I mean, we start at the top of the show talking about, look, a lot of these concepts are similar to others. They're familiar to us. Some are more complex theories than others. It does come down to being a decent human, I think, at the end of the day. You can wrap it up however you want, but just be decent. Just be a human being, and uh, you'd be surprised, surprised, unshamedly surprised, how much impact that can make on people. Absolutely. And it's, it's, I don't know what else to say except what you just said. That, that's absolutely correct. Paul, I have this little bit of the show I call Sticky Notes, which is where I try and pull in the summary from my guest on today's episode. And my God, that's difficult with you because we've covered so many different things. But if you were to leave behind three little post-it notes of wisdom, for my listeners to take away from today to start improving engagement or the workplace culture, all, all that kind of stuff. What would you leave them with? Well, we've talked about trust as a, as a essential element of any relationship. And, and I believe trust is once again, anyone can complicate it. I believe trust is very simple. It's two things. First, do what you say you're going to do. And second, do what you're supposed to do. If you don't know what you're supposed to do, you need to find out. Because if you want a relationship with me, those are the two things that I have as expectations. What you're supposed to do and what you say you're going to do. Because if we get that straight, we're going to have trust. And if we have trust, we're going to have a relationship. Uh, the, The second point would be the one you've already mentioned, and that is, Treat people like humans and recognize that in a time of crisis, especially if you're a leader, you have to step up and a part of your job is to take some of the stress that they're encountering onto yourself. And you do that by being supportive, being curious. And let me put that in there as a trait of leadership that we often ignore. Empathetic curiosity is absolutely essential if you want to be a leader. That means that you want to know about the people you work with and who work for you. And you need to ask the questions, provide the opportunity for them to share answers by asking them questions that matter. So empathetic curiosity is would be my second, my second sticky note. Uh-huh. And, and the third one is practice the three A's. 
And, and by the way, it requires practice because if you don't practice, it's a skill set. If you can't figure out how to do a handwritten note, you know, take a tutorial because people love handwritten notes. <laughs> I, you know, at the end of when I do workshops, at the end of a workshop, and I don't care what it's on, I give everybody a certificate and they love it. These are very simple concepts and it, that increases engagement. And if you're not willing to do those things, then continue to watch your, your talent leave. I've been coaching now for 20 years. Uh, I don't believe it should be complicated. I think it's all about doing what we've just talked about. And uh, if you're trying to do something other than that, it's not going to work. I'm so with you, my friend. And that's a nice, simple bit of plain speaking summary of how to unlock the not-so-secret secrets of engagement. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. The time has just rattled by. I can't believe that. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely wonderful. And I, I look I look forward to seeing what you get up to next, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Andy. It's Like I said at the beginning of the show, it's a privilege to be talking to you. I think you do a very admirable job as a podcast host. And uh, I love the opportunity to obviously say what I believe is true uh, about the future of work. And uh, you've got an audience that uh, obviously is eager to hear that. So thank you for that opportunity. My pleasure, my friend. Thanks very much for sharing. You take care now. Thank you. Okay, everyone. That was Paul Glover. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about him and some of the things that we've talked about in today's show, please check out our show notes. So... That concludes today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting, and heard something maybe that will help you become a stickier, more successful business from the inside going forward. If you have, please like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Andy Gorham, and you've been listening to the Sticky from the Inside podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>